Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Rare Bird Books, publisher of The Good Family Fitzgerald, the new novel by Joseph DePrisco. The Good Family Fitzgerald is a saga of money and ambition, crime, and the Catholic Church. It's a sprawling, passionate story shaped against a background of social discord. In riveting fashion, the good family Fitzgerald depicts the lives of Irish and Italian Americans for whom the church is both an organizing principle and a corrupting force. The Good Family Fitzgerald by Joseph DePrisco, available now from Rare Bird Books. Hello. How's everybody doing out there? My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I have Chelsea Beaker on the program today. She has a debut novel out on Catapult Press. It is called Godshot. I have it right here in my hand. It's got a beautiful cover. There's some glitter happening on the cover. Chelsea Beaker, Godshot. I'm going to talk to her in a second. Is something bothering you? Are you freaking out? Are you having a hard time? Are you having a hard time figuring out what your goals should be? That happened to me once, but guess what? BetterHelp Online Counseling is here for you. Great supporter of this program. Get connected with a licensed professional therapist in under 24 hours and get the help you need in a safe and private online environment. No waiting rooms, no traffic. It's convenient, professional, affordable, and available for clients worldwide. Whether you're dealing with depression, stress, anxiety, trauma, family stuff, LGBTQ matters, whatever it happens to be, BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors ready to assist you. Anything you share is confidential. Please note this is not a crisis line. Best of all, listeners of this program get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash other PPL. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash other PPL. All right.
So I, uh, I saw a deer today. That was probably the most exciting thing that happened. I was hiking. I've started hiking again. That's nice. So far, it's been okay. I live in Los Angeles, so we have to wear masks. Not everybody does. We're supposed to stay, you know, six feet apart. Not everybody does. This bugs the shit out of me. I got to be honest. What is it with people? Just don't want to deal. They just don't want to stay six feet away. I'm like using hand, like hand gestures, trying to get people to move over. And I'm just trying to be considerate. I don't know, but I did see a deer. This is one of the nice side effects of uh, the pandemic is the animals have uh, returned. I saw a coyote on my first hike. It was like, you know, like 15 feet away from me, just kind of turned around, looked at me, walked away. And then I was walking today and I honestly thought to myself, I was like, I think I'm going to see something. It was like that kind of thought. Like I had a premonition and I turned to my right and there was a deer. First time I have ever seen a deer in the hills above Los Angeles, which is a little strange. You would think that with all the hiking that I do that I would see one, but there's usually so many people up there, they probably get spooked. I was excited. I took a video. You can see it on my, uh, on the uh, Instagram feed for the other people show. Chelsea Beaker is the guest today. Had a nice time talking with her over the transom. She was uh, up north, I believe, in Portland, Oregon, if my memory serves. And uh, her debut novel is generating a lot of buzz. Godshot is the name of it, available now from Catapult Press. Uh, Great book, interesting life story, fun conversation, all of it ready for you now. Here she is. This is Chelsea Beaker, and her novel, one more time, is called Godshot. I think the term mother loss for me kind of came about because I always felt that it was sort of like a condition that I was living with, like a disease or I don't know, just like a a syndrome of some kind that I had had to contend with my whole life. And a lot for me comes back to that original loss of my mom when she left and and, it was definitely. Go I, ahead. I, I, I want to just interrupt you so that listeners don't get disoriented. Like, what what exactly happened? She was struggling with alcohol addiction. Yeah, yeah, she was an alcoholic, and you know, a myriad of things were going on. Um, I think that once we moved to Fresno and we were kind of alone for those three years, things just really spiraled into a, a dark place for her. And she ended up forming this relationship over the phone with a man from Reno, Nevada. And they, quote unquote, kind of fell in love over the phone. And there's some hints of that in the novel, I think, where the mom is working at the phone sex business and and meets someone through there. You know, that would be an overlapping thing. But with my mom, she met this person and basically just kind of went away with him. Um, and I think that her intention was always that it was not a permanent thing she had done, but because of the addictions and because of everything else, it, it became a permanent thing. You know, she never came back, but part of the condition of that parent who's still alive, but absent is that there's always this question of whether a return could happen. So I lived for a long time in childhood thinking that 
at any moment, you know, this could turn around, maybe, that there was always a chance for her to redeem herself or come back or get sober or try again. And then I remember turning 18 and realizing that that was kind of over. Um, There was no more custody issue. There was no more court-mandated 10-minute phone calls. So then I just feel like a lot of my adulthood was contending with this sort of baggage that I had from all of that longing and all of that hope that never really amounted to anything. Um, so wait, what was the custody situation for you? You lived with your grandparents, you said, and, mm-hmm. and you, you moved in with them after your mother left. And she, um, I guess she, what, she dropped you off and just disappeared, basically? No, she didn't drop me off. It was actually, I, you know, memory is funny. This is my memory of it. Um, I made a phone call to them when things, in my opinion, had just gotten too bad. And I said, can you come get me? And she knew, I think, that if I did that, then it was it was going to not end well. And I remember her saying, like, they'll take you away from me. Um, we had had some issues with social services before that. So it was kind of this culmination. And then she called this character that she had met um, and he came and got her and then they left. So I kind of went one way and she went the other way and we never were really reunited. So it was kind of a weird, a weird thing. And then the custody went to my father who then turned it over to my grandparents. Yeah. Where was your, where was your dad? He was working as um, he was doing engineering projects that he would kind of travel for every couple of years. And, um, it just seemed like for him, I don't think he thought that seemed like a good way to raise a child, like moving so much. And I also think he didn't really want to be a single father of a girl. And there, I mean, there was lots of issues on that end too. So in a way they both did me a huge favor by turning me over to my grandparents. I think I can see that as an adult logistically that, while the situation was not perfect, the situation was better than anything I was going to get from either one of them. Right. So, yeah. So, okay. So your your grandparents raise you, um, and you're growing up in in smoggy Fresno. Um, I'm imagining you didn't have any siblings in the house. You were like an only child with your grandparents, correct? I was. I have a half sister who's 20 years older than me, but we were never, we never grew up together. So I was an only child with my grandparents. Yes. And did, were you talking to your parents at all? Did your mom call in or anything? Yeah. So the court gave us a rule of once a week, 10 minutes on the phone. And my grandma was a real stickler for the rules. So she would set a timer outside the door and I could hear it like tick, tick, ticking the whole time I'd be on the phone with my mom. And it was so stressful. And, um, and that would go on once a week. Usually she, she would call and we'd have our 10-minute chat. Okay. So she was at least in touch. Yeah. We we sort of moved into a phone relationship that we've had ever since. Um, I've only seen her two or three times since she left. So in my life. And other than that, we've we've just had this phone relationship. Did you see her as a child? 
Not really. She went to Reno and I was in Fresno. So she came, like I said, like once or twice before I graduated high school that in both trips ended horribly. And then I went to see her to do an intervention after I graduated from college when I was like 22. I drove to New Mexico where she was at that point and tried to do this intervention that ultimately failed but i had to give it a go as yeah. an adult yeah 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 so she's she, she never got sober she's had patches here and there um and so there have been times but no unfortunately she has not ever had that peace in mm-hmm. her life you know like hearing this like it's an incredibly difficult thing for a child to go through it's heartbreaking to even contemplate especially as a parent and i'm sure now that you have kids and you're a mom, you're maybe even more uh, tuned in to what you went through. Like, did that change your perspective on it? Having children of your own and suddenly being in the role of the mother and feeling um, like I, I can tell just by uh, talking to you that you're, I mean, you don't even drink caffeine, we were just saying. So, I mean, you, <laughs> you're clearly like a very, very tuned in, I'm imagining mother. Like, can you talk about what, um, that experience has meant to your own um, relationship to your memories of your childhood and your mom and your perception of that relationship? Yeah, I think the most startling thing after becoming a mother was that it both deepened my some of my anger toward my mother. Um, every time I would see my daughter reach a new milestone or a new age, I would think about our life when I was that same age and would just be kind of re horrified all over again. Cause I can't imagine my daughter in those scenarios, but also it has really deepened my compassion for my mother because I've been able to start seeing her, I guess beyond just my mother and more as a, a person and an individual who is really struggling and, you know, that's not always where I'm sitting with it, but more often than not, I'm in the place of, yeah, seeing her more wholly and having more compassion. And also, I think in the book too, by the end, you know, there's a love that endures between the mother and the the daughter in the book, despite their circumstances. And I would say that that's true for my mother and I, where really nothing that's happened has been able to extinguish my love for her and I don't know that that's possible I think if it were to happen it would have already happened and it hasn't so I do think that that's kind of a beautiful thing that I've been able to cultivate more as an older adult with her is leaning more into the love that we do have for each other and I feel less like hot fire about the other stuff and anyway, if I do feel fiery about the the other stuff, I know that it's not really my job to take it to her. It's that's something I can process through different modalities. Um, but yeah, it's becoming a mother and and then having the situation with my mother is hard on a lot of levels. And another one would just be that I feel so jealous when I see women with babies and then they have the support of their mom or they have the guidance of their mom. I think that's always something I've missed and um, I've had to just find in different places, I guess. 
And what about your grandparents? Are they? I know your grandfather lived to one hundred and two. I read that, but are, are they no longer with us? My grandmother is still with us. She's in Fresno. She's ninety five. She's amazing. She's an amazing woman. Um, so strong, such a spitfire. Nothing can bring her down. So she's. We have a really great relationship now. Oh, that's amazing. So 102 and 95. You're, you come yeah. from hardy stock. My God. <laughs> it's uh, true. Um, and then what about, are you in touch with your dad at all? I am. We also have a flourishing phone relationship. Um, and with him growing up, we would do these kind of biannual visits where I'd, I would see him in person for like a week, twice a year. And um I think we have the best relationship we can have considering. So, you know, I know it's it's better than some and it could be better at the same time, but I I just have this radical acceptance for who they are now in a different way where my expectations are gone and I decided a long time ago that I was going to try to accept and love them as is and my goal is never to change them for a long time it was like I felt like I needed to be the person to get them sober or help them with their shit and I'm so far from that now where it's the last thing I would want to do it's totally not my responsibility or in my control so what does your dad str- does your dad struggle with addiction too yeah. Oh, he does. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it coming on both sides. Yeah. No wonder you don't drink caffeine. You got to be careful. <laughs> I, I know. Anything I touch, I'll do it to an extreme. So. <laughs> um. So yeah. Wow. That's that's a lot. And I think like you know the urge to want to change or to feel some sense of responsibility, like that deep bond that you share with your parents biologically. That like you were kind of speaking to this a moment ago. You can't really flip that switch off i mean they are you you're made of them Mm -hmm. you know so i think that that sometimes there can be this impulse to want to like cut ties and just be completely done with a family member whether it's a parent or a sibling or it's a fallacy you can't do it it's uh it's never gonna Mm -hmm. it's never gonna work you know you can't cut that tie because uh or at least that's my that's my idea of it um and i think you know, something that comes to mind as I try to imagine going through this um, is like maybe coming to a place where you, you know, if you have anger, the anger is directed more at the disease than it is at the person. Like, do you have that kind of thinking ever come into play? Is that, am I making any sense there? Do you know, yeah, what, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Because yeah. they, they both struggle with a very serious and deadly illness. And um, on some level, it's not, it's not a person's fault for having like an, an addiction issue. You know, I I feel like it's kind of genetically hardwired. Is it not? Yeah. And I think, um, doing a lot of self-work on myself and forgiving myself for certain things and understanding that we are a product of what we've been shown in childhood and we can either hopefully have the opportunity to rearrange some of that to form the life we want to live, or we don't get that opportunity. And I think especially for my parents' generation, you know, my dad's a Vietnam vet. There was not a climate of self-help going on for him. He has extreme PTSD and trauma and, you know, grew up in difficult circumstances. So in my best version of self, I can see them as these whole people who were doing the best that they could with the pretty difficult childhoods that they had 
and I see the ways that they were coping against the pain of those experiences. So it's like I can see it at a distance so clearly as the child of them, you know, I still have moments where I'm like, really, you did that? Like, yeah. that, was that really a thing that you did? Like, okay, that was fucked up. Right. <laughs> but that's just, but that's for me to handle. That's not, you know, I'm an adult and I can choose whether or not I want that to infiltrate my existence now or not. Um, but that choice is also a privilege. I think that our generation now we have more options for self-help. We have more avenues that we can take that I know that my parents were not exposed to. So it's different. Yeah. So what about um, self-help? I, I know you read self-help, as do I. Um, I've read a lot of it. I, I haven't read anything recently, but I've read a lot of it. And uh, I like it. I, I don't know. Mm. I find like, I mean, some some of it is kind of schlocky and ridiculous, but... Um, I don't know. I'll go to that self-improvement section in the bookstore and try to figure myself out. Like I find a lot of comfort in books in that way. Uh, especially if I'm at some sort of crossroads in my life or if I'm struggling or, you know, there's a, a million different, uh, circumstances that could, could necessitate it. But like, I'm curious, like in terms of the work that you did on yourself and continue to do on yourself to try to navigate life and deal with like a pretty heavy, um, like psychological, uh, experience, you know, uh, I think that you would almost have to have some kind of therapy or somebody to help you go through that. Correct. Oh yeah. I mean, my journey really started when I decided to stop drinking or using any kind of drugs when I was 20. So that was the first step into this new way of living where I was willing to suddenly interrogate things about myself in a deep way. And I would say that that has just continued. Um, it's the old image of the peeling of the onion where there's always kind of a new layer. But to me, that is exciting in a way because it feels like there is something to do. I'm someone that likes to do something with my situation. Um, maybe it's a control issue, but it feels really good to think, oh, I have all these different perspectives that I can look at myself through and hopefully, you know, take what I need and leave the rest. So with self-help books or self-help podcasts or wellness, you know, spheres, there's, I love them because I might take one thing from one person, but that's great because it was one thing I didn't have before. I don't need to subscribe maybe to the whole thing. Um, the value of that one tip or trick or way of thinking or new perspective is so valuable to me. And I love that there's all this possibility within that world. Have you read the secret? <laughs> I have. <laughs> I have. Yeah, okay, of course. But, hey, listen, you if, you, if you wish hard enough, if you wish hard yeah. enough, it will come true. I think that's a little cheesy in a way. I like the idea more of the idea of like manifestation being rooted to our self-worth and um, reforming that idea of our self-worth in terms of creating the life that we want. Because I think our subconscious is coming from a place of what we believe our self-worth is. And we do kind of attract from that space, I think. But I don't know. The so secret is a little too magical. I know. I know. I'd like to pick on that book. But uh, <laughs> what are some self-help books? This is actually something that I have not talked about enough on this show is this 
particular genre. Um, and so I'm curious, like, are there books uh, in the category that you can point to as having had a big impact on you, like one or two, like really memorable ones that um, really helped you on your way? Yeah, so the first one I'm thinking of is, I'm trying to remember the title exactly. So I, again, I, I wouldn't say that I subscribe to all of it, but I think it's by Louisa May and it's something like you can heal yourself. And it's a little bit about this idea that illness and disease and symptoms that we might be feeling are rooted in emotional blocks and emotional trauma and experiences. And, and I really believe that because I think for so long, you know, I suffered from migraines or I had this tension in my neck that would never leave. And it wasn't until I turned over, you know, going to the chiropractor once a week wasn't really doing anything. It would just come back. And I started to realize that it may actually be rooted in something that was more mental and it was more of a place where I was storing trauma in my body and that I would have to move that trauma out of my body if I wanted relief. And so I started tapping into some different ideas around that, that were more connected to the mind and less connected to just like, I need someone to manipulate me physically to feel better. It was like, no, my neck is where I'm storing my childhood trauma and the loss of my mother and working with kind of this massage therapist who was also kind of an energy healer worked. I mean, the knot is gone and I don't have the migraines anymore. And that was like a huge shift for me where I was like, a lot of this is, I think, connected to our emotional experiences. So I liked that book. I liked some of that book. I don't remember all of it, but it was a turning point. And, and now I feel like I listen to more podcasts um, I'm always trying to get new information and and things like that, but I'm always open to different things. I don't know. What are some self-help books that you've loved? Oh my God. I mean, like I read, I read like, I went through this phase. This is how hyper earnest I was in my twenties where I read all of, uh, like I read about Emerson in a biography and I read that whenever he read, he kept a notebook and took like detailed notes in a very like organized kind of outliney way, but then he indexed the notes. Like there was an index at the mm. back of the notebook so he could go by subject matter and find whatever he needed more easily when he sat down to write his essays. So I remember indexing all of like Emerson's essays. I remember, um, like, this is so embarrassing. I remember reading Tony Robbins. <laughs> oh yeah. But I mean like, in, but I mean, and, and, but enthusiastically, if I'm going to be totally mm -hmm. honest, I was like 22 and just like, what the fuck do I do with my life? Like there was yeah. like, that kind of like moment seems perfect for that. I read a book. Um, I mean, I could, God, I'd have to dig through. I remember reading like Buddhist stuff, like, mm -hmm. um, Zen mind, beginner's mind, I read a ton of stuff about Buddhism. So those those books, I guess, sort of fall into self-helpy. I don't know. Do those count? I think so. Yeah. I think anything that's asking us to kind of enhance or expand our spiritual experience on Earth is self-help. To me, that's what I think of as self-help. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And then I remember Wherever You Go, There You Are by John Kabat-Zinn, Full, mm. ca Full Catastrophe Living, which is a, a nice title. I mean, there were, there were a lot. There were a lot. You know, and thank goodness. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I felt like a deep sense of relief. I think when you're in a space mm -hmm. where you're sort of tied up in knots, 
and I didn't have a therapist or anything like that. Um, I never have done that. And so books were sort of it for me. And, uh, I always, you know, I think I still have that impulse and it doesn't necessarily, it's not like necessarily a consistent thing where it's always there and I'm constantly like reading the secret, but, um, sometimes you just hit like an impasse in life and you're like, shit, I need some books, you know? Absolutely. So it's good that it's good to, it's good to have them when you need them. Um, I want to ask you about, you said when you were 20, you made the decision to stop um, using alcohol and drugs. And I think with your family history, that's a very wise choice. Um, (laughs) But did did you, did you have a problem? Like, did you make the decision because you're like, I'm just going to be proactive? Or was it like, wow, I've been partying, you know, I've been awake for nine days and I probably should stop doing this. I felt like from the first moment I ever drank or got high that it just was not the experience I was witnessing with my peers. It felt like I was immediately experiencing it in this more intense way and I immediately wanted more. And I, that was like at 16. So I knew right away, I was like, well, this isn't looking good for me, but I'm going to keep trying I think there was just some of that natural rebellion, wanting to do it different than my parents, wanting to succeed and be normal. I really wanted to be normal so badly and realizing by the time I got to 20 that if I kept going on the track I was on, um, I was just going to have another sad life where it was just going to be all so familiar and I already knew where it was going to go. There was no mystery for me and maybe that was why I was able to be willing to change so young is because I'd seen my parents do it. I've already been there. And I was like, you know what? I don't need to experiment. I, I can get off the elevator now. I don't have to ride it to the bottom. So I, I just didn't, yeah, I don't know. I just didn't want that life. So I stopped. I think I had a problem and I was on my way to having a much bigger problem when What's, I stopped. What is that called in, in like addiction lingo? It's called like a high bottom. Is that what it's called? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I, I definitely feel like I went as low as I personally wanted to go. Um, but I could have gone much lower for sure. And I feel fortunate that for some reason there was there was some part of me that was bigger than the part of me that was going on the bad road well, that you know, pulled, pulled me back. I, I, I listened to you talk and um, read your book and have, you know was reading some of the press you've done already for the book. And I just think about your life and I think, my God, like you've, you're made of tough stuff. Like life handed you a difficult uh, hand of cards. I mean, you got lucky. You have like superhuman grandparents who are like, you know, both going to be centenarians, it looks like. <laughs> like. You know, so you got that. And like you had a stable upbringing, which is better than many people have. So, yes, you know, it could could have been worse. But what what I always say is the phrase that it could be worse is one of the least comforting phrases in the English language. I can't stand it. You know, when people are like, hey, it could yeah. be worse. I'm like, don't remind me. <laughs> I know. You're like, it could be, of course. <laughs> Tell but me why? Yeah. Why does it have to be? <laughs> right. I, I think we've got our, we're all full here. You know, we're yes. pl- plenty of suffering. Um, so, you know, you at 20 make this momentous decision and you've got some, like, I think what I was getting at and saying that you're made of tough stuff is that, you know, when your parents um, are not present in your life and you feel this sense of abandonment as a child, uh, you know, even with your grandparents there 
as guardians and good guardians, you know, who loved and, and nurtured you, there is still that feeling of I'm on my own and I got to, I got to survive. And I'm sure too, like actuarially, you know, I, you didn't know when you were a kid that your grandparents were going to live to be a hundred years old. I'm sure that was maybe kind of stressful. Was there some worry about, Oh my God, they're old. Like, are they going to survive? You know, like uh, I would have, as a kid, I think that's where my head would have gone. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if I would have talked about it, but it would have been a concern of mine. And I think it must have toughened you. Um, and, you know, you, I don't know. I sense like a, a strength. You would have to have strength to do what you did, not only to get yourself sober at 20 and to get yourself out through school and to like build your life, but also to be writing books and, you know, building a family and doing the stuff that you're doing. I think it's awesome. Oh, thank you. That's really kind of you to say. But so were you, were you, uh, as a child looking at your grandparents and, and their age and was that a part of the equation for you? And did you feel the way that I just described? Did you feel a sense of like, yeah. I'm on my own? Yeah, I felt, I think I've lived my whole life very concerned that my caregivers were going to die at any moment. So you kind of have this weird sense, like with, with parents like mine, it felt like life was always just right on the edge. And then with the age of the grandparents, sure, it, it, it felt like that too. I worried for them um, a lot. And carrying that kind of ongoing stress is really hard on a person. And I, I've really, as an adult, tuned into the fact that I've carried a lot of stress for a lot of years. And undoing that is kind of what my job is now, I think, and not and trying not to add to it. But for sure, there's always that inherent fear. Um, and I, I think when my parents left, and I was no longer in their care, there was this door that opened up in me where it was like, Oh, that was my worst fear for a long time. And that happened. So it created this idea in my mind that the worst could happen. It changes you a little bit. I think if you experience loss at a young age, something like that, it shifts your worldview where you're like, these aren't things that happen to other people. These happen to me. And so it created some anxiety growing up where, you know, the world was always about to end a little bit. Yeah, no, I mean, I had people, I experienced like tragic loss at close range, but not in my immediate family, in my personal experience. Like my dad lost his sister when mm -hmm. he was younger, but this was before I came around. Um, so that sort of uh, like dark mythology existed in my family and I had some awareness of it and would see her picture on the, um, mantle when we visited my grandparents and so on. But, uh, you know, the losses that I experienced as a child were like at friends and neighbors, you know, and mm -hmm. like kind of unthinkable things happening. And it happened multiple times, you know, uh, which I think was unique. I don't think I know too many people who saw those kind or had those kinds of things happen at close range, but it didn't happen to me personally, the way that it happened to you. And the the point that I'm trying to make is that even so I'm still sort of grappling with that. And sometimes mm -hmm. I, sometimes I feel like I'm not justified in doing so. I'm like, what are you so tangled up about all this for? It's, it wasn't even your family, <laughs> but you know, it, it definitely affected me deeply. And I think maybe it did what you just described. It made me aware that the worst can happen. Mm -hmm. And I think once you see that at close range and it's somebody that you care about, whether it's family member or friend, it definitely, I mean, I don't know how it can't leave a mark on you, right? Yeah, I think it does. And I think however you experience it, 
Um, and it, maybe it's why you're a writer too, is because when these things happen, for me at least, I felt like I needed somewhere to set this shit down. I needed somewhere to put it and I needed to make meaning from it or else it was going to drive me crazy. And so, okay, so now we're getting to spiritual territory because I feel like what we're talking about um, is, for lack of a better term, like a spiritual crisis. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> the worst can happen. Uh, you know, in some ways it's happened to me or it's happened near me. I was raised Catholic. Um, and like, this is all stuff that I'm grappling with in this book that I'm working on. So it's very like fresh in my mind, which might be coming through. But uh, I look back on my childhood and I, I'm trying to like, figure out what what happened do you know that sense mm -hmm. of like well, let me piece this all together because mm -hmm. i know i know the stories that i tell myself but i'm trying to kind of measure these and find out yes as much as best i can what's really true and you know i was raised catholic it never really took i was never really enthused about it as far back as i can remember i don't know exactly why i just it was just not for me um and then i still had to go i got confirmed by the time I was in high school, I was like, I'm not going. <laughs> like my parents finally surrendered. And then a lot of bad shit happened towards the end of high school. Or not a lot of bad shit, but a friend of mine's uh, brother died of cancer. And like I kind of saw him deteriorate and just witnessed it. It was just the cruelest thing because their father had died five years earlier. So it was like a double cruelty. Mm. Um, and I think like in hindsight there was a kind of dark attitude or dark, I don't know what you would call it, a darkness that came over not just me, but like my entire friend group. Like we all witnessed that. And I don't think we had the tools we needed to cope with it necessarily from a spiritual perspective, if that makes sense. Like mm -hmm. it was such an existential crisis. Um, because he was only 18, 19 years old when he died. So he wasn't that much older than we were. He was a boy. And we were just like, what? You know, it was a, it was sort of mind-blowing. So I guess I'm it's a it's a roundabout way of asking you if you relate to that. Like did you do you feel like you conceive of what happened to you in those terms? I know your book is concerned with religion um and, you know, really intense religiosity. So did that factor into your childhood? Did it factor into your recovery? I mean, you clearly have feelings about it. Yeah. Well, when I moved in with my grandparents, I started going to church every Sunday, sometimes multiple times a week. It was a huge part of our lives. And that was such a shift. It was just overnight. I was saved and I was a part of this other community. And I think I was really hungry for some rules and some structure and this idea of an of a loving God and a father God, all these things were very attractive to me at that age after, you know, being separated from my parents. And even at a young age, I wanted to understand why this had happened. The question of why was so huge for me, and it, I was obsessed with it. I wanted to know why it had happened to me. And no one was talking to me about it in a direct way, but I felt like at church I was poking at it or something about the sermons or something about what they were saying about God was touching on it uh, for the first time. And I loved also that there was some sort of safety. It felt like I'd been tagged, like tag, you're it, you're saved now. Um, 
And what, I was like, I've been waiting for this. What was the denomination? What was the what kind of Christianity are we talking? It was a Baptist church. So it was in Fresno. It was sort of, um, I guess I described not a mega church, but it it was like a small mega church, I guess. A mini mega. A mini mega. Yeah, <laughs> there was bagels. We like the kids' church was in the gymnasium. It was. It felt big to me. It was overwhelming. Um. Did the priest wear like a Madonna microphone, like a headset mic? I think so. I think there was, perhaps there was a, a mic. It was not like what you would see on TV, though. I don't want to misrepresent it as like one of those churches where they're dancing up and down the aisles or something. It was not that enthusiastic. It was smaller than that. But um, at my age, it felt pretty overwhelming and, and big. And I I took to it really quickly. So I don't know. I just always remember wanting some answers. Uh and wanting to lean into that and not knowing where to get those answers when a lot of the adults in my life, for whatever reason, I have no idea why it just wasn't, we weren't talking about anything directly. Hmm. It felt like, yeah, no, I get it though. But I mean, it, it, like wanting a, like a, the, the nice, like paternal God, I can see where mm -hmm. the, where the appeal would be mother Mary. Um, and just like, you know, the, I, I think maybe I, I think maybe I can relate a little bit to that feeling as a kid, um, both of, both of the feelings, like first the feeling of like, Oh, okay. I'm feeling comfortable, you know, a little bit of comfort. Cause I can feel like they're starting to get towards the big questions that are, that mm -hmm. are, that are there for all children. Like I have a nine-year-old daughter and like, she's definitely got plenty of questions about big things, you know, and mm -hmm. it definitely, and it definitely is difficult for her and any kid is going to, you know, have that. But I don't think necessarily that adults, always do a great job of, of languaging things in a way that addresses those concerns. Um, and, and mea culpa, like, I feel like I'm screwing it up to some extent. Like it's, you know, it's really easy when you don't have kids <laughs> to be like, God, I wish people would just get this right. And then you have one and you're like in the middle of making dinner and she's like, what happens when you die? And you're just like, uh, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and they always catch you off guard. So I relate to like sensing like, okay, we're getting to it. But I also relate to the frustration of like, okay, but wait, you just said that like God's always watching. Like, why would God let something so bad happen? And mm -hmm. I had a million like kid philosophy questions that frankly still have not been answered to my <laughs> satisfaction, you know? And that's where I think I went off the rails. And then when I tried to express confusion, there was like, I felt like reprimanded or something. Like I didn't get it. And I was just mm -hmm. like, you know, is that whole that whole psychological dance. Was that the situation for you or like, how did it develop for you? Yeah. I mean, I think what I pulled a little bit from my experience in that church was that the idea of curiosity or doubt or questioning authority was not, was not really a good quality. Um, and so but at the same time, leaning into the idea of mystery of not having all the answers and being fine with that was also very praised. So it was this funny dance of, I guess, having a lot of questions, being really curious, but then not having any of the answers. I don't know. And, and that builds a little frustration, especially I think once I got to be a teenager, I was, I felt committed to my life in the church and I felt committed to the rules that I was living by 
And then I started, my peers sort of started falling off one by one. And, and then it eventually I was sort of like, why am I imposing these rules on myself in this certain way when nobody else is around me? And, um, I don't know, I guess the deeper questioning began, but there wasn't really a place to put those questions within that structure. Um, and, and beyond that, I think as an adult, I became really interested in the way that they totally evaded sex education and really practical, useful things that kids need and, and aren't really getting, and I wasn't getting that at school or at church. So, um, I don't know. Looking back, it's kind of clear why why a kid would be confused and and frustrated in that scenario. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I feel this. I, I'm thinking back, and it's like, wow. Like, so on the one hand, you're telling me that like you are dialed into God, and you have this book, and it's like the Word of God, and you know God and how it all happened. And yet, when I start asking questions, it's like you just got to live in the mystery, man. <laughs> you know, it's like right, it, right. There's it, it like an obvious like. Uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for or the phrase that I'm looking for, like a disconnect, um, mm -hmm. you know, between the two, two sides of the equation. So I don't know, it frustrated me, but did you come to, or have you come in sobriety or in adult life or in motherhood to any kind of accommodation with it? Do you have, did, did something else take over? Are you like a hardcore atheist? Like, where are you with it now? Yeah, I mean, I would say that I still have a belief system. I don't know that it's rooted in any one church. Um, kind of speaking to what we were talking about earlier about self-help, I think where I am right now, and it's always changing, so I want to say, you know, right now, it's like I'm taking what I need from different places and, and allowing those things into my life in a way that serves me and that feels good and and then leaving the rest. So I think politically it can be hard to be in a more traditional church space for me. Um, although I can see good things about churches, the community that can be really beautiful. Um, I don't have one overarching opinion about religion as a whole, other than for myself, I like to take what works and leave the rest basically. That sounds like a sane approach. Yeah. And then I like all, I like anything that, um, is going to allow me to ask difficult questions about myself. So whatever that is, um, it could be kind of a cheesy self-help book. It could be something that sounds weird to another person or to, I kind of hate the term woo woo, but I guess I use that. I'll Maybe. use like woo woo. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> you know? I, it's, it's a weird thing to say, but I don't know. Like it, it kind of describes something ineffable. You got to use it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I will hold a crystal and do a meditation and write a list of things I want to call in. I'll do all these things because why not? I don't care if it, if it sounds crazy, if for some reason it's giving me peace, then it's great. Um, then it served a purpose and, and it also feels really grounding to hold a crystal. So yeah, <laughs> just do it. Yeah. What, what kind of, what kind of crystals, <laughs> what kind of crystals are you into? I talked to Carolina Vlasaviak. Uh, um, I don't know if you know her work, but I had her on the show years ago and we, we got way into crystals in that episode. And after, you know, she left a few days later, she, she sent me a crystal. Oh. That was my, that was my, you know, maiden voyage with crystals, but now I have like a nine-year-old daughter, so crystals are all over the place. I feel like she's getting into like yeah. 
magical stones and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But why not? Right. Like, who knows? Maybe there's some energy in there. I don't know. Right. It's like, we don't know, but if there is, don't you want it? Like, (laughs) you can't really lose. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so pretty. They're so pretty. They're so pretty. Yeah. I'm a rose quartz girl. I like a a nice uh, selenite, but yeah, again, it's like, I'm really open. I'm open to those things because the most unexpected things have helped me. And so I continue to be open to what might work. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Then it's not for me and I can walk away from it without a judgment. But I think, I think it's good to be open. You any, are you any good at meditation? Okay. Not so great unless it involves some movement. I notice that if I'm doing it along with some sort of yoga, even like a series of movements, I can get deeper into it. Or if I have a guided meditation, I can go deeper. It's hard for me to just meditate on the fly with no like sound in the back or I have to be kind of lulled into it. Yeah. I mean, I've been meditating a long time and like lately I've been like, man, I've been doing this a long time to be this bad at it. Like I'm just <laughs> sitting there for like 45 minutes and I'm just like jabbering at myself. My mind oh, is, that's a long time. My mind is crazy. I don't know about yours, yeah. but mine, yeah. mine yeah. is like nonstop. And like, nonstop. what's funny to, to watch is like, I'll be like, I'll be like, there it is. I'll be like, cause I do this. I'm doing this meditation called noting mm. where, where you're like, you sit there, you just try to go and follow your inhales and your exhales. Very simple. Just mm-hmm. inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. But then if like my dog like yawns, cause she'll be in the room with me a lot of times and she'll like yawn and I'll just be like yawning, dog yawning, dog yawning. <laughs> and then, you know, there'll be like a heli- like a police helicopter, like flying overhead in Los Angeles. And I'll be like helicopter, helicopter. And then, right. all the- then all of a sudden I'll catch myself and I'll be like, I'm all- I'm usually like working on some problem that's related to work, like in my book or, and it like 15 minutes will go by. And I'm like, and then I'll suddenly like come out of me like, oh my God, I just fucking lost my shit. And just, I didn't even realize it. You know what I'm saying? Like I, <laughs> I completely got on the boat and went down the river and then suddenly I, I snap awake and I'm like, uh, you know, this after uh, I will say to myself in the meditation, like, okay, now you're really going to focus, like really concentrate. And I will go into it with that intention. And my mind just goes berserk. I can't control it. <laughs> Yeah. No, I relate to that a lot. I actually, when you were talking, I was thinking of one helpful thing. A therapist told me once, she was like, don't think about it so hard. Sometimes you just need to curl into the fetal position, put a hand on your heart, pat your heart and say, it's going to be okay, sweetheart, over Uh and over and over until you fall asleep. And I was like, okay, (laughs) guess I'll do that. And you know, what's so comforting is doing that. <laughs> well, after the uh, after we get done with the interview, if you could give me that therapist's phone number, I'm going to have to call her. That was it. I just gave you the tip. That was the best thing I got. <laughs> I'm going to have to use that one. Uh, it's okay, sweetheart. <laughs> I want to say, where have I, I think I've, I want to say I've, I heard that or someone said that. I don't know. It, that's like sounding familiar to me, or maybe I just want it to be familiar. Yeah, uh, it's like the padding of the chest is the important part too. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like the end of Goodwill Hunting where he's like it's not <laughs> it's not your fault. It's not your right. fault. That's all that's really all any of us want to hear at the end of the day, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a brilliant ending. Um so let's talk about you as a writer because I think we've sort of 
laid the foundation. Like if you go through the, the shit that you've been through and you don't become a writer, something's wrong. Like you, you are destined to be a, a writer, I feel like. You have to come out of this if you're going to try to make meaning from it. Um, like I, I cannot imagine not grappling with it in the work, though I'm sure you tried to avoid it. Or maybe you didn't, mm. but I can imagine that you did. But can you just talk about like your origin story? It sounds like books and writing have always, like most of us, you know, we sort of get tuned in that we like it as kids, but how intense was it for you? Did things really escalate after you got sober? Like what, what's the timeline look like? Yeah, I always connected to stories and books. Um, I think for me, yeah, it was this impulse to record my experiences because I needed to understand that they were real. There's some weird manipulation that happens, I think, when you grow up as the child of alcoholics where you're constantly second-guessing yourself. You're constantly saying, did that really happen? You know, the next day when this, the fog had cleared, it would always be like, that couldn't have happened, right? Am I crazy? You know, and I felt like this impulse to put things down in writing almost to remember them or almost like proof that I had really experienced what I thought I did. Um, even as an adult, I'll think back to memories and be like, man, did that really happen? I mean, it sounds crazy. And and that's, again, that impulse to write it out. Um, a lot of my fiction is answering questions for myself where some of my short stories are merely they just come from the space of wondering what would have happened if this happened. You know, what if that day this happened instead of what actually happened? And then I'll go off on that path. And um, I don't know. It's like it's probably some inward desire to make sense of certain things that happened that just for me came out in writing. Um, and so you were doing this as a kid and then you went to college in Portland. Is that right? I went to undergrad in San Luis Obispo in California at Cal Poly. And at that point, I thought I wanted to do journalism just because in high school, I had been writing book reviews for the school paper, which really was something that saved me. I had an English teacher who had noticed that I was always reading, you know, things that weren't for school. And one day she was like, do you want to write a review about what you're reading? We'll put it in the, the school paper. And that changed my whole life. I was like, oh, you can do that. That could be a thing that people wanted to know about. And so I kind of went the journalism track after that what were you in re- undergrad. What were you, what were you reading in high school that wasn't for school? Oh, I would just go to the library and pick whatever cover I liked. I had no taste, uh, no inclination other than like what sounded good. I No one around me was like guiding my literary tastes. So I was reading everything. I was reading Stephen King. I remember coming across The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niffenegger, and that felt really life-changing for me. White Oleander, you know, and then a slew of books that were just, I loved a page-turner. I loved kind of some cheap thrills. I don't even know what I was reading. I was reading everything. But, um, and and then I would just kind of write these little articles about it. And then in undergrad, I had a book review column for the paper again. And um, I was writing a lot of re- – I was doing a lot of reporting, but I was also – I knew that I was more interested in writing fiction. And then by the end of college, I was kind of hanging out in the English department all the time and 
um, submitting to their literary magazine and working um, more in that area, I guess. And and then a teacher said, hey, you could keep doing this if you wanted. And it felt like every step of the way, there was some magical teacher that kind of stepped in that was like, oh, have you heard of this? And and I feel really fortunate those people came into my life. Um, they kind of paved a, a little route for me that I didn't know existed. And so when I applied to grad school for writing, I applied to like two schools, one in California and one in Oregon. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, at the time, it seemed crazy to go to Oregon. That seemed really far. I thought I'd always stay in California and and then I didn't. So I kind of, once once I was in the MFA program, things clicked in in a different way in terms of seeing myself as a fiction writer, but that was yeah, that, that was that know. that was at Portland State. Yeah. Okay, so mm-hmm. you moved you moved to Portland, you get into the MFA program, and then were you working on Godshot in your MFA or were you working on other stuff? No, I was writing stories in the MFA program and I think, you know, I can see pretty clearly that all of my stories for the most part were inhabiting this same world, maybe not directly, but I was building toward, I think, writing this book all along. And definitely the characters in my writing, I feel like the story collection that will come out after this is sort of holding hands with this book in terms of overlapping characters, similar spaces, similar energy. Um, most of my writing has taken place in these these geographical spaces and also sort of the similar style of, of character and, and themes, I guess. Um, but no, I wrote, I started writing Godshot in 2013 when I was pregnant with my daughter. Hmm. Interesting. So you started it when you were pregnant with her. Yeah. And I, I, I guess like, it seems to me like very common, especially having had so many conversations with writers, but also like knowing my own experience that like sometimes the thing that we, we have to write, um, like I'm, I'm recalling a conversation I had with uh, Amanda Yates Garcia the Oracle of LA. She's a, a witch. Mm. And she was talking about writing her memoir. Uh, it's called Initiated. And I remember distinctly that we were talking about how she had tried to write this book of poetry about being a witch and witchcraft. And she's like, I'm just going to write witchy poems, you know? And that was, that was the idea. But then she kept sitting down to write and she had to write about all this difficult, painful stuff that she had lived through as a kid. Um, and I don't know. It just resonated with me. Like you, you sort of like a lot of us, I think, try to avoid having to write about this really tough stuff that's like deep and emotional. And of course, like that's the only thing we really should be writing. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. it's, it seems that way anyway. And I, I see it over and over again. Like I can think of writers that I've had on this show where I'm like, you know what? You, you still have not written the book that we all really want from you. Mm. And it's the one that you're avoiding because it's going to force you to reveal stuff about yourself that you're scared to reveal or to go places that you're scared to go um, privately or publicly, you know? And like, I don't want to sound too uh, woo woo or too, um, I don't want it to like, I don't want to get into psychobabble, but isn't that really the case though? Like, don't we, don't we need to grapple with those things? Isn't that the fundamental work of an artist or shouldn't it be? Or I guess there's a lot of different ways to do it, but I tend to gravitate towards books where I feel like I'm getting the real stuff. Absolutely. 
And I think you can sense if you're not getting the real stuff a little bit and there's something off or there's some, there's a difficulty emotionally connecting with a story. If you can sense that maybe the writer is hedging around something and I don't know, I don't know any other way to write. And I know that in writing this book, I think there at the very beginning, I don't, maybe I wanted to avoid telling the story too closely of my own experience. And I mean, this novel is not my own experience. In the end, the characters took it to a different place completely. But what remains true is the emotional experience of the narrator is my same emotional experience, I think. Um, and not writing that for me would was impossible. It was going to come out. I felt like it was just going to come out. This book had to be first and I didn't feel like I had much choice in that. So what about a memoir though? This seems like prime memoir territory. Mm. Why the novel and not the memoir? You know, when I first tried, I remember in, on, or in my graduate program, I took a memoir writing class as kind of a separate elective. And I thought walking in, I thought, oh, I've got this. Like I've got lots of stories to tell. And I remember sitting down and having nothing to say. I felt like I could not approach it head on in those terms yet. I felt, and it was a real catastrophe. I had a whole meltdown over it because it felt suddenly, I felt like I didn't know my own story. I was like, how do I not know how to write this? It's, I just say what happened, but it's not that. And, and fiction was a way I could approach it differently and that felt actually really energizing to write and it felt fun it felt like I was in control of the story in a much different way even if I was writing about difficult things even if I was hedging on emotional truths I was still in such control of what was happening in this fun way and memoir you know and now I've I've tried to start in on that and I've published some essays about my childhood at this point and it's a different writing experience. It's very draining for me. Um, it does not feel fun in the same way at all. And so now, now you're talking. Now you're talking about my experience. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't totally, know. I totally get it. I totally get it. Like it's like fiction frees you up. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe that's you know maybe that'll ultimately be the direction that things go for me. But there is something about like trying to deal with painful stuff on the page where it's like wow, like where's the fun in this? It's just. I mean, and listen, if you can muscle through it and you can make art and, you know, render it beautifully despite having to kind of slog and um, grit your teeth and, you know, go through the difficulty of it, then the end result can be wonderful for people. I think you can be performing an incredibly valuable service, but um, it sure sounds more enticing to have it be fun and energizing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I I felt really clearly that when I kind of start after I finished these two books, I was like, and now I'll write my memoir. And I kind of sat down and I was like, now I'm going to do this. This is the right time. And I was like, it is not the right time. I just had a baby. We we transplanted our whole lives. I was not wanting to go to the page in that way. And I was like, you know what? It's okay if it's not the right time. And one day, perhaps it will be, but that day is not today. And and I just check in with that periodically. And sometimes I'll write a little bit and then leave it again. And I, I'm not putting a lot of pressure on it because the last thing I want to do is tell the story in a rush or do it in a way that isn't, I don't know, that isn't doing it a service. Um, 
just for the sake of doing it. And I think I'll know when I'm ready and I'm not sure that I am yet, but it is very brave to do. I, I think in my experience, just publishing personal essays, it's a really different experience having that out there in the world. Um, if a short story comes out, it's different. When an essay comes out, every person's comment, all the feedback, it hits you really differently. And so I imagine writing a memoir would be like that times a thousand, you know, you get suddenly these weird messages on Twitter, like how people have interpreted your entire life. And that can be a real strange onslaught to receive. And or, or like, like, what if, what if the opposite happens that everybody just loves it and like, totally suddenly, well, suddenly, yes. you know, you become some sort of like, you know, superstar author and you just, <laughs> you just like filleted yourself, you know, that's on my the, grand plan. <laughs> that that's is, my, that's my long-term plan. <laughs> but no, it's just like, I recently, I had an essay come out about my mom and I had really great feedback and a, a, so many kind people that were like, this was my same experience. You know, there was this beautiful relation relating with, with readers that I loved, but then there'd be like the one weird Twitter message that was like, you just want this horrible thing to happen to your mom. You're a bad person, you know? And you're like, whoa, like my whole day was weird. Even though when I saw it, I was like, this is like a crazy message. This isn't real. I'm not going to let this bother me. But you know what? That night when I was going to sleep, I thought about it. Right. And, and it does bother you. And I'm like, fuck, if this was a memoir, <laughs> you were getting that kind of, it's, it's just a lot. And I think it's not that I won't do it because of that, but I think going into it, thinking that that won't happen is not realistic and thinking that it will be this easy emotional experience that I want it to be is not realistic. It will be hard. And I am trying to provide some grace for myself for when I want to jump right in. Yeah. I mean, you know, things think, trust me, I've been working on a book for a decade, so I'm, I'm the best person to talk to about sympathy regarding time. <laughs> yeah. There's no time. Time is, is not real with writing. Yeah, it, that, it'll it, come when it comes. That's right. That's right. So uh, let's talk about your publication history. So you go and you get your MFA and you're working on stories. Um, and uh, are you publishing? Did you publish any of these stories before you um, got pregnant with your first or? Yeah, right at the end of my MFA program, I had a story get published by the normal school. And then from there, I think I had one or two other other things. And then when I got pregnant with my daughter, I got into the McDowell colony at the same time. So I went to the McDowell colony while I was pregnant with her. Where's that? Where, where is the McDowell colony? Why do I not know anything like this? Yeah, it's in New Hampshire, Peterborough, this little tiny town. Um, it's just a heavenly place. It's beautiful. And it was really transforming for me. Um, just the people I met there and and the space they provide. I'd never experienced anything where life could just pause and you could just work on whatever you wanted. And nobody was asking you to show what you were working on. Nothing. You were just there. And, and I loved it. It was great. And I wrote this really fast draft of what would later kind of become this book. Um, How long were you there for? I was there six weeks. Oh my God. Yeah. A long time. I could never do that now. I mean, I'll probably never do anything like that ever again until my kids are way older. Right. <laughs> so I'm really glad I snuck it in. Um, you know, looking back, that was perfect timing because now I 
I could never do that, but um, well, God bless the McDowell glorious. Colony. I mean, thank- God bless <laughs> you, McDowell Colony. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. So they are amazing. You write a, a fast draft, and I've read you. You know, you were saying that you're a fast writer, like partially due to necessity. Um, because you have these pockets of time, like I guess you have yeah. in this case, six weeks, but you know, uh, more recently, uh, due to domestic concerns, like you kind of have to fit it in, in these little like windows of an hour or two, probably. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So I'm building up to a question that I've asked before, but I'm going to ask it to you because uh, I feel like when I talk to people who are sober, um, I, I feel like, and I have friends that I know. It's not just people that I talk to on the show, but it's also friends of mine who uh, write, who I feel a certain envy of because they take, I think, uh, the energy that was previously, or at least some portion of the energy that was previously spent, um, you know, when they were using or, you know, uh, drinking and, and doing drugs or whatever. And it it gets like rechanneled creatively in a way that it feels like almost like a superpower uh, I don't mean to idealize it, but do you see what I'm getting at? Like, do you, yeah. feel, do you feel like your ability to write fast? And then I guess too, you, you said earlier that you studied journalism. And so I know journalists tend to be good at like just getting stuff out. There's like kind mm-hmm. of, kind of takes the, the romantic, uh, you know, delay portion of the experience out of it. You just have to write cause you're usually on deadline as a journalist, but mm-hmm. does that resonate with you? What I just said, do you think there's, that's some reason, you know, some of the reason why you're a fast writer? Yeah, I think the journalism piece is a part of it. Um, definitely writing on a deadline, just having to do that was a really great practice for just writing to just the act of putting words on a page, knowing that I could do that, um, that practical experience. And then, yeah, I when I write, I hear it. I hear it and then I'm copying it down from what I'm hearing. So if I'm tuned in, it goes fast because I'm trying to keep up with what I'm hearing. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Well, but... is it because it's voicey? Is that, I mean, is that yeah, it? I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. It's it. the voice clicks in and then I'm just transcribing at that point. And that actually can feel like this otherworldly experience and doesn't happen all the time. But for me, my process, I write a lot and I write fast, but a lot gets cut. So my best friend, who's a writer, Genevieve Hudson, she writes much slower. She edits as she goes. You know, she's always commented like, how do you write so fast? Like we'll sit next to each other writing and Chelsea will write 20 pages and I'll write one sentence. But at the end of the day, we've produced the same amount of work. You know, we published almost exactly the same amount. So it's not like the the speed at which I write is so accelerated and amazing. It's like, then I'm just cutting like hundreds and hundreds of pages. So it's just a different process. Um, it feels like I build a lot of material and then shave it down to its essential parts. So you must not be like, like uh, neurotically self-editing in the way that I sometimes can. Like you're able to kind of turn that off and just go. A little bit. Yeah. I can get really caught up. Some of my writing days are just me rereading what I wrote the day before and like, and editing it. And then I get to the part where I would start writing new material and then I'll hear the baby cry. And it's like, okay, well that was it. I guess I, I really got those commas, you know, (laughs) like maybe I could have just gone forward, but, um, I don't know. I, I've just always, 
once the story is clicking in with the voice, I can really go for a long time. And and that's just the way it is for me. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I can, and like the, do you think like my whole theory of the case of like people with like mm. maybe a more addictive predisposition might be able to redirect that energy? Because like you were describing how fast you work and I was thinking of a friend of mine who works works incredibly fast and she's sober and i'm just like damn how do you do mm -hmm. it <laughs> you know? i don't know i'm just uh, i'm always looking yeah. for, for any reason to be like what's the what's the angle here what maybe i need to uh, get sober and then this will help me uh you know? <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i think maybe i have this quality in me that really gets off on my own discipline like i'm so disciplined in so many ways and for me that feels really freeing um I hope I articulate this right, but there's something about just the basic ability to like sit through discomfort. Like I've sat through a lot of discomfort in my life. Yeah. And so sitting through the discomfort of a blank page and just being like, whatever, like I'm not going to sit and bemoan the blank page or sit in a lot of anxiety about whether or not I can write. It's like, I'm just going to do the thing because it doesn't feel good, but I know that I'll survive. Um, and that just comes with the practice of sitting through discomfort over and over and over and realizing each time I survived so I can do it again. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I, I think, and then having kids, like I have a real fear of wasting time and, and sometimes I love to waste time, but other times I know that the time might not be handed back to me later or later I might be too tired or later they might wake me up in the middle of the night and I'll have a fucked up night of sleep. And, and so there's no guarantee for writing tomorrow. I always, if, if I'm feeling it, I have to do it that day or I just have to sit through the discomfort of doing it when I don't want to. Plus you read the secret and you know how to manifest things. Yeah. I, I just close my eyes. <laughs> Um, so what about the publication like story of your book? So you finish it, you get it ready, you need an agent, I'm assuming, or did you find an agent based on the normal school story or, um, like how did it go for you to get it into print? Yeah. So my agent emailed me through my, at the time, like blog website and it came into my spam folder and I thought it was spam. And I remember showing my friend and saying, this is like really cruel spam, right? This is like pretending to be an agent. <laughs> and then I was like, wait, is this real? So uh, that is, so my agent found me that way. And it was funny because at the same time, it happened the same week that I was going to the Tin House Writers Workshop where I would have a conversation with an agent there. So it was kind of nice because I got to have this conversation with this other agent, talk to this agent who had messaged me, and then I reached out to a few other people. Um, and this was kind of before I thought I was really ready for that part of the process. But I ended up going with the agent who messaged me. Because she she was just such a smart reader and she understood what I was doing. The way she talked about my project was – it felt so true to me and I felt so connected to her immediately. And so I just went that way and that was great. That's fantastic. What, who is this agent? Her name is Samantha Shea. She's with George's Borchardt. Um, she's amazing. She represents a really diverse and cool group of writers. She's with Jenny Zhang, and um, I don't know if you know her work. 
Sure, and, yeah. And like just so many, so many. I'm of course now that I'm being asked directly, I'm blanking on everyone, but um but I love her. She's and she was really really the only person I was showing pages of this book all the way through the process. So it was just kind of her and I hmm. going back and forth. So with you, it. you shared like you would finish like a section of the book and just send it over to her and she would give you notes as you went? I was giving her drafts. So I would give her like the full the full draft and then oh. she'd give me notes and then I'd rewrite pretty much the whole book and then she'd give me notes and we went back and forth like that for a couple years. Oh really? How many drafts? At least like five solid go rounds, I think, where I was doing a big overhaul on the entire book. Maybe more. Damn. Yeah, it was a lot. You did the work. <laughs> there was a lot of work to do. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then what about the sales process? How did that go? I mean, this, by the way, this getting an agent story is kind of magical. That's pretty great that she just emailed you and she was the one yeah. and it worked out. And I then, know. I know. and then you go through the, uh, kind of the editorial process or whatever they, there needs to be a, a, a distinct word for editing the book with your agent before you go and get an editor. <laughs> like the pre, yeah. is it called like pre-editing? I don't know what you call it, but you, you know, so much of the editorial tends to happen with the agent before you go to market, um, mm -hmm. almost to the point. I mean, usually there are a little, you know, there's still some work to be done. Occasionally there's a lot of work to be done, but yeah. I, I think more typically it's like the book's pretty well baked by the time it gets to the, the editor at the publishing house. Yeah, definitely. Um, when we sold the book, I talked, so we sold it to Jonathan Lee at Catapult and our initial conversation was similar where I felt like he really understood the book and the way he talked about it was how I thought about it. Um, and his main editorial comment was that he felt that it needed to be cut down, that it was too long. And that's actually something I kind of expected someone to say. I had a sense that maybe it was a little too long or that it was sagging in places and could be a little more dynamic. Um, how so long I was going, it? I think it was probably 130,000 words range. It was maybe less, maybe less than that. I think ideally he wanted it more around that 80, 90,000 range, and we were over that. Um, and I think it ended up landing around 100,000 words, but that was sort of after a big cut and then adding some things back in. And I think it got a lot better in that cutting process. Um, and that's mainly what the work that we did together was, was trimming the places that needed to be trimmed. So how about the sales process though? Like you go out with the manuscript and then when did Jonathan put an offer in and like, how did that part of it go? Where were you when you found out the news, like all that kind of stuff? It was a really crazy time because I was hugely pregnant with my son during this process, which I don't know if I recommend going out on submission that pregnant, but then when else would I have done it? Definitely not during the newborn phase. So um, it was sort of like we we were doing this, and at the same time, I had won a Rona Jaffe Award. It was like, and then at the same time, I was having my son, literally within days of each other. These three enormous things happened in my life. And so it's all kind of a blur. Um I'm trying to remember the exact order. It was like, bam, bam, bam. It was a lot to take in. And we didn't really start the work on it for a few months um, because I had had my son. So 
I, yeah, I, I remember just being so pregnant, like so pregnant to the point of I was at Costco and someone working there said that they were not prepared to help me deliver if that needed to happen there. <laughs> And then they walked me out to my car. I felt like I was a being punked or something. I was like, what? <laughs> All right, push my cart. <laughs> wow. All right. So, well... yeah, I was just like at a park and I'm just like trying to have these conversations, these like huge conversations in my life while I'm pushing my daughter on the swing and I'm trying not to like have a baby in the middle of the park. So it was a it was crazy. But I mean, Looking I, back, it's a lot. I think like too, though, if you're out on submission when you're that pregnant and you've got, you know, so many big things happening in your life, I, I kind of feel like maybe that's healthier in the sense that you don't like get super neurotic and fixated on the book to the, yeah. de to the degree that you might otherwise have because you're about to have a baby. Like there's bigger fish to fry, you know, than totally. your, your novel. So I can see how that might shrink it in a healthy way, like shrink the importance of it in your mind and like it wouldn't be eating up as much psychological and emotional space. Yeah, I think it really became more real to me when I went to New York in September and did the Rona Jaffe ceremony. And then I got to meet my editor for the first time and go to the offices. And that was that was like, oh, yeah, like this is really cool. And I had I was past the point of where my son was out and like, you know, things I could focus on in a different way finally. And it, that was a really fun trip. So that was more, I think, when things sunk in. And got real. Yeah. And it was a two book deal because of the story collection too? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, have your parents read the book? Have they read Godshot? No. You don't think so? <laughs> oh, I know they haven't. Oh, I mean, my mom is waiting to get the prescription glasses she's been talking about for the last five years. Um, so whenever she gets those glasses, she's going to read it. <laughs> we'll see if she gets the glasses. And then my dad, my dad doesn't really read anymore. It puts him to sleep. So he, he might sit and read like one sentence and then he's asleep. So I think I'm safe. I don't think they're really going to read it. I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe, I mean, you would know better than I, but I feel like there are parents who are like, I'm not going to read. I, I guess maybe I'm also projecting, like, I cannot imagine if my child wrote a book that I would not be curious. Like, I know. But, oh my God. But maybe, maybe there's also some fear. Maybe they're like, oh God, what did she say about us? <laughs> you know, like... I can imagine that too, but yeah, they don't read anymore. I know that in their youth, they like to read. I remember my dad liked to read, um, but it's been a long time since they've read for pleasure. I don't know. It's just not part of their lives. So I think they like to have the book and they like to hold it and it's like a they're proud of me. It's a, it's a coaster, you know? It is. It's like a gold <laughs> coaster and they love the concept of it and that's good enough for me. I don't really care if they read it. In fact, it's probably best that they don't. <laughs> what about uh, what about grandma? Is this 95? Is she reading or no? Oh, she's going to read it. She is. She's like, she's hitting the pavement hard at her retirement home where she's like ground selling. She's like having people order it while they're standing there on their phones. She's like, when this is over, I'm marching into Barnes and Noble and they're going to do a front of store display. I was like, okay, I don't, are you my publicist? Like you're amazing. She's funny. She's a real go getter. So she has lots of ideas about 
how to promote the book locally in Fresno, which is hard because there's like one bookstore in Fresno, but By she's going to get there. That's the most adorable thing I've ever heard is your, it's ni- amazing, yeah. your 95-year-old grandma like working the retirement home and forcing people yeah. to order. <laughs> Force, she's forcing. She's like, you have technology. Just pull it up right now. I'll just show it to you right now. Okay, order it. <laughs> Well, I am, uh, I'm really happy for you. Um, this is awesome to see the book, uh, you know, become a thing and to be doing so well. Um, you know, the critical acclaim has been uh, excellent and uh, you got another one, you know, in the pipeline. And then I guess you're now working on the third book. That's the early stages, you said. We'll see. Yeah, I think so. You think so? It's, yeah, of course, you know, just... What do you just got to manifest it? Come on. I know it's so easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, but like, you know, all that you went through and to render it and to get it done um, and done well is a big achievement. And I hope you are taking some time to recognize that and celebrate a little bit. Thank you. Thank you. And part of celebrating is like having this conversation with you. This has been wonderful. Thank you for your questions and just love talking to you. It was really fun. Okay, that's Chelsea Beaker. Her novel, her debut novel, is called Godshot. It is available from Catapult Press. You can find her on the internet at chelseabeaker.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Chelsea Beaker. She's, she's all over the internet. She's on Instagram, Facebook. Track her down, Chelsea Beaker. The book, one more time, is called Godshot. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show is available for free. The entire archive, more than 600 episodes, it's all given away. It's a listener-supported show. Your support makes a difference. If you want to support the program, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, if you have something to say, if you have some feedback, the email address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Let me hear from you. This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's a free app. That, too, is free. It's free. The app is free. It's a good app. Go get the app. It's free. So uh, let's see who we got here in the offing. Gonna figure this out. Up next, I believe, is Brady Hammis. Brady Hammis or Kristen Miardis Young. One of those two. Those are the two uh, in the queue coming up next. Good conversations, good authors, good times. I hope you're well out there. Hope everything's, uh, you know, starting to settle down. I don't know if it is. It's nice to think that it would be, though, isn't it? Gotta have a dream. Don't forget to register to vote. Get your shit together. Get your mail-in ballot, whatever it is. Okay.